Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a still rather deserted city of Westminster in these current times, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I am Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on today's programme by Jazz Thind. Jazz is a director who oversees and runs numerous businesses within the care and hospitality sectors, one of which is the Laurels Nursing Home in Hastings, East Sussex. Jazz, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us. Thank you very much for taking the time to join. Yes, good morning. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Jazz. Now, the purpose of uh, this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and the need for different business leaders to really feel their way through this unprecedented crisis. Tell me, for somebody working within care and hospitality such as yourself, how has it been trying to get through the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's been a tremendous challenge very much being right on the front line. It's been a it's been a whirlwind. We've had to work differently. Um, we've had to use IT. Where in our sector, in particularly, it's always been face to face, people orientated business. Now we're having to reduce the risk of spread. So even in terms of managing the care homes, we've had to utilise things like Zoom. Um, and and I still go in, but we try and minimise any uh, entry into the home. We were very early to lock down. Uh, visitors, uh, although we did get some adverse um, publicity from that, but as soon as the government introduced their lockdown, we were sort of vindicated, and it has helped because it's uh, markedly reduced our, um, our our COVID positive results. In fact, we're COVID free at the moment, but whether that's through luck or judgment, um, only time will tell. For sure. Um, only time will tell on uh, that front, uh, Jazz. But it's a testament, I suppose, to proactivity within the leadership of uh, the Laurels in particular that, of course, that rate has essentially gone down. And also the lockdown measures came in very quickly. There was been a great deal of debate about that as well, um, that sort of proactive versus reactive approach. Because a lot of people um, are saying that the UK probably should have entered lockdown a lot earlier and have, having, of course, entered on the 23rd compared to, say, for example, Italy, who began their lockdown as early as the, the 9th um, of March. Um, if we think about that for just a moment, uh, Jazz, and take that scenario away from politics and just away from the COVID crisis for a second, when problems arise within any of your businesses, are you the kind of leader who is inclined to dive straight in, impose certain measures, get on top of situations as soon as possible? Or do you prefer sometimes to let things play out a bit, see how matters develop, and then take action from that standpoint? We tend to react fairly quickly, and I think that's the advantage of a small business, is we can be quite mm. nimble. We've got a very flat structure, but we also have an advantage in that we've got long-standing staff. Um, when it gets to us, it's normally because they need help at that stage, and we, we need to be seen to be acting. Uh, we have a structure whereby our managers are consulted throughout the process, never imposed. Um, uh, generally, the board and the manager of each home is consulted in every decision. Um, but we tend to be quite quick. There are certain things that you have to take time over. You have to look at the longer-term implications. But when it comes to care, you have to be very quick because the consequences for people can be serious, and we're talking about life. Um, but by the very nature, we tend to be very quick for acting. Mm. Um, generally, we've come across most things, um, but this one did come out of left field. Uh, we have dealt with other 
um, infections and viruses like SARS and um, uh, foot and mouth even. So a lot of the isol- and we're used to dealing with infections. So a lot of the things did come naturally. It's just the PPE issue, which was different. The level, the level of uh, isolation as well. But we tend to be quite quick, and that, that's what's the advantage of having a smaller business. I think you are right in what you're saying there, Jazz. Smaller businesses are um, far more adaptable and far more uh, flexible, if you will, to be able to make changes at a quite short notice. And that's something that's been really, really important during this time, hasn't it? The ability to adapt very, very quickly to changing guidelines and make quite quick decisions, but still in a quite measured way. Um, and also the leadership that has to uh, go into that from a people's perspective is also uh, quite important as well, because being on the front line as you are in care, I can imagine there's been a tremendous amount of worry with in the ranks at certain times and it's a real testament to uh, the attitude of uh, the employees concerned here that they've just kept getting on with things continued to work and keep things um, ticking over and that must have taken a tremendous amount of leadership just to keep that going and, and, and the biggest thing is there is a there's an underlying fear in the population um and the the, the presentation of covid19 in the media hasn't helped there, there's an underlying fear of people coming into work, and that that's difficult to manage in itself. And yet, we've had staff who have even volunteered to say that if we get to the point where we have to stay in the home to to look after people, and you know, away from their own loved ones, and at risk for themselves, that's a testimony to staff. And again, that's the most that's the biggest advantage we have is, is the quality of our staff. And profit has gone totally out the window. We haven't even considered profit. Since this started, the expenses are are far greater than we thought it would be. But it takes a second, it plays second fiddle. Any business has to survive, but profit hasn't even come into our thinking. We just need to get through this. And the same as many other businesses, we're no different in many sectors. Um, that's where we are at the moment. And uh, the PPE issue has been really difficult. Um, Whatever, as you say, irrespective of the politics of it, it was a very difficult time for any government. And I don't think anybody could prepare. But this, this is a pandemic. It's global. There are so much global demands on PPE. I don't think anybody could provide the PPE quick enough. But at least mm. there's capacity now. We are getting PPE, but, it's, but we're only carrying about two days' stock. And if you get COVID-19 in the home, that may only then work out to be half a day's stock. So that that is going to be an issue that's ongoing, mm. and that means that I think all the homes need need help because we were the Cinderella service, we were the the not so sexy arm compared to the NHS. The NHS made headlines, and the government did have to make a difficult choice, as, I mean, which, which they when, where where do resources go? And quite rightly, it was the NHS. Um, however. We could have done with a bit more focus in social care, and that's why we're in, we're in quite a difficult situation at the moment. So some homes have been um, racked through with COVID-19. It's, it's decimated homes. Um, and, 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 the, and the testing we're getting from the hospitals hasn't been accurate, hasn't been forthcoming. We've had to ask for whether patients were COVID-positive or, ne- or, or negative. And sometimes it's only verbal, and the verbal uh, assurances weren't given, didn't match up with the the evidence. The tests weren't there, or the tests were positive. 
So that's something that communication needs to be addressed. And that's part of the problem why homes are having issues. It's not that they weren't taking precautions, it's that the information wasn't forthcoming. The hospital the hospitals are under extreme pressure to move patients out to get capacity for COVID nineteen positive patients. And yet the people that they were releasing into care homes hadn't been tested properly. Or the results hadn't even come through and yet we were assured that they were COVID negative. Um, there's so much we don't know about this virus that we, we don't know how we're going to react. For example, if somebody is COVID positive but they ha- aren't showing symptoms and yet on the, and they continue not showing this symptoms and their next test is also COVID positive, how long will they be carrying the virus? How long do we need to mm. have isolation measures for them? We have to think of that person's own mental well-being and be in isolation for that long. They're not in the best of health, the fact that they're with us. So there's lots of guidance we need and we need support and the regulator hasn't exactly been supportive. One of the challenges that we're facing that no one seems to have addressed is the insurance companies. Insurance companies are now running scared because they're they're fearing uh, possible COVID-19 claims in the future. This ambulance chasing um, mentality that we seem to have got from the state, this no-win, no-fee basis, where solicitors will be chasing, saying, you had a COVID-19 death, it could be lack of PPE. Some insurance companies are just not insuring the sector. We are, we're finding one, our, one of our homes very difficult to insure. If we can't insure it, we can't operate. Mm. So we need some government inter- intervention, leadership from a higher level than us. I so think... it's a cry for help as much as anything else. There are some things we can control, but this is totally beyond us. And we spoke to the regulator, and the local inspector just said, there's a lot of homes suffering that you're at the same fate. But that's not a solution. No one's providing solutions. We're just fighting in the dark. can certainly see where you're coming from uh, there, Jazz. And uh, the government really does need to uh, step up during um, this period, for sure, particularly as it brings down essentially lockdown uh, restrictions and starts to uh, to loosen those uh, during this period and um, for the benefit of um, the listeners tuning into this we are speaking on the uh, the 1st of June 2020 so as of today of course groups of up to six people can actually gather outside and meet as long as they are adhering to the two meter social distancing guidelines um jazz out of interest if you were to become the uh, the prime minister just for the day is there anything that you would do differently with regards to your response to this? I would um, ask the insurance companies and TQC to be more supportive as opposed to just identifying the problems that we've already identified. Mm. And I think there needs to be, uh, the biggest thing they could do for us, the government, would be to say that any COVID-related claims are either not going to be valid or they will go through an ombudsman somebody to uh, adjudicate. Otherwise, the the whole sector will be decimated by legal action in the future. Uninsurable losses. Um, The sector is already struggling. We know that it's due for review and how it's going to be financed. Um, But at this point in time, although we we can provide the best care we want, and that's what we try and do. We get out of bed in the morning, and our objective is that 250 people are employed when we go to work. Um, and so to keep the sector secure and, and flourishing and provide care, 
it needs stability so it can plan for the future. So that liability for COVID-19, I know in, in the NHS that there is a certain amount of cover that the NHS covers, will we'll, we'll cover in terms of uh, lives and death and insurance. And same as when we have a flood. But at the moment, in terms of the pandemic, that aspect hasn't been covered. And the insurers are running scared, quite rightly, because the losses are, are, are on the horizon. Uh, and the government, I, the Prime Minister, I would have stepped in and said, look, we'll, we'll take care of that, and that will have to go through a central panel uh, rather than lawyers fighting out in court over people's deaths. Um, we're, in, we're in the business of life, not death. And it's not something that small businesses really plan for. So that's what I would do. I would look at those aspects and have a regulator which supports us mm. at, at this time rather than just uh, highlight the problems we already have that we're identifying. And then, because they don't want to visit homes, because they're, 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 they're in fear of themselves visiting homes mm. of regulation. This is the time we need the regulators to come in and support us. It's easy to grab headlines and it's sexy to, to beat the NHS and it's sexy to beat social care. But there's a lot of good stories out there, a lot of good care being provided. And we need a positive regulator and a positive government approach. We're, we're all stepping up to the plate. We do day in, day out. We don't need claps. We do it 24-7. That's after there. And we just need a little bit of help rather than just clapping. Completely understand where you're coming from uh, there, Jazz. And if we do think about what the future holds now, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today, what do you envision um, over the uh, actually happening over the next uh, twelve months um, within um, your businesses? And what do you hope to achieve in hopefully getting through COVID nineteen, but also in the future as we begin to emerge from this uh, pandemic? Because it's clear that there are still a lot of problems there, and the future is still very much uncertain. Personally, I just want to get through any phase two or phase three there may be because it, it, it can be seen on the horizon that this, this, this thing's mm. not going to go away unless unless there's a vaccine. If there isn't a vaccine what would be a game changer if we had a test that we could do on site that we got the results there and then because we're finding that tests aren't being collected on time or we're not getting the results on time um, because they, they are part of the cold chain. They have to be collected at a certain time the test. Ideally you want but what would really help us and would be really positive if we had a test, which like the old pregnancy test, you can do it there and then, you've got the results, you can take the actions that you want. But I think we'll get through. Um, I'm really positive that if the government acts cautiously uh, in, the, in opening up lockdown, we will get through this. Um, a lot of positive good, good things happening, but we just, uh, I, th- I think we will survive. Um, Profit won't be is part of our lexicon at the moment. Um, yeah, I think the sector will still be there, but it hopefully will get reviewed and it'll be adequately funded so we look after our elderly. Let's certainly hope that that review is uh, forthcoming um, as soon as possible with regard to how the uh, the industry is uh, financed. And let's also hope that we can get through this uh, current situation sooner rather than later and also, crucially, swerve a second or even third wave, as you've rightly said, Jazz. I've got to say, given how informative and thought-provoking it's been having you on the air with us today, I actually think at some point in the next year it would be hugely beneficial from a listener's point of view especially to actually have you back on the programme with us just to catch up on how things are getting on and just see 
how some of these hopes that we've outlined today have been borne out and what that changing landscape is looking like because it's clear as you said it isn't just going to go away and there is more of this uh, to come for sure and it will need to be uh, discussed and reviewed then as well okay thank you very much and um, hopefully we'll all be in the same place I hope so um, as well, Jazza, for sure. Um, In the meantime, of course, do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on. It's been a real pleasure having you on the programme, but as I've said, also a really, really insightful experience also. And I do wish you very much um, all the best um, in your endeavours going forward in battling this terrible, terrible virus. Thank you very much. That was Jazz Thind, Director at the Laurels Nursing Home in Hastings, East Sussex. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and of course the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence as one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and also serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough back in August 2015. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, 
both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms 
about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, There has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, What's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.